tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. You're alone in Paris, unable to speak the language, unable to cope with a gigantic conspiracy which seeks to convince you that you are mad. You are the victim of a plot from which there is no escape. This is The Vanishing Lady, first broadcast on Escape in 1948, and one of only six episodes to feature a female protagonist. That's six female heroes out of 182 unique episodes of Escape. So you can see that the show is symptomatic of the fact that adventure narratives have tended to be written by and for men. One reason for this has to do with action, which we saw in the last few episodes is such an integral part of adventure. The sociologist Irving Goffman wrote that in the West, we've tended to divide the world between the safe and silent places of the home and the office and the places where we think that action might be found. By this logic, action won't happen in homes, offices, or department stores but only in the traditionally male-dominated pursuits of sailors, hunters, gamblers, soldiers, and the like. The author Ursula Le Guin makes a similar diagnosis when she points out that while it was the male mammoth hunters who were celebrated in prehistoric cave art, it was really the gatherers of seeds, berries, and nuts that kept early communities alive. But those activities, while they were crucial to survival, just couldn't compete with the drama of the male hunter thrusting a spear into a titanic hairy flank. That story, Le Guin writes, not only has action, it has a hero. Escape mostly told stories about the mammoth hunters, and the great majority of episodes in the series feature a white male protagonist and an aggressively heterosexual outlook on the world. But sprinkled across the seven-year run of the show can be found other stories, stories with room for the hunter, but which aren't about him. In the next three episodes, I examine escape stories that depict adventures that take place in hotels, department stores, and suburban homes, the safe and silent places of the Anthropocene. In their representation of both space and gender, these indoor stories expand the repertoire of adventure heard on Escape. 
Indoor adventures can also expand what counts as an environmental text. And in my next few episodes, I'm going to be putting escape shows in dialogue with Rachel Carson's landmark book, Silent Spring, from 1962. This is one of the nation's bestsellers, first printed on September 27, 1962. Up to now, 500,000 copies have been sold, and Silent Spring has been called the most controversial book of the year. Carson's book was a turning point when environmental discourse moved into the domestic sphere. She presents a vision of contaminated communities, of homes and neighborhoods suffused with toxic chemicals. Chemicals are the sinister and little recognized partners of radiation in changing the very nature of the world the very nature of its life. Since the mid-1940s, over 200 basic chemicals have been created for use in killing insects, weeds, rodents, and other organisms described in the modern vernacular as pests. And they are sold under several thousand different brand names. These sprays, dusts, and aerosols are now applied almost universally to farms, gardens, forests, and homes non-selective chemicals that have the power to kill every insect, the good and the bad, to still the song of birds and the leaping of fish in the streams, to coat the leaves with a deadly film, and to linger on in soil. All this, though the intended target may be only a few weeds or insects. Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth? without making it unfit for all life. They should not be called insecticides, but biocides, 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 biocides. For the environmental critic Lawrence Buell, Silent Spring is the fountainhead of contemporary toxic discourse, which he defines as the fear of a poisoned world. Thinking about toxicity, helps us to locate environmental issues not only in distant wilderness spaces, but also within our homes, schools, workplaces, and neighborhoods. Escape's indoor adventures recalibrate the adventure genre for an era of all-pervasive chemicals and unbridled consumerism. These stories suggest that in the post-war era, the world could no longer be easily divided between safe domestic spaces and dangerous sites of action. In a toxic world, life hangs in the balance not only on alpine glaciers or in lonely lighthouses, but in hotel lobbies, department stores, and suburban living rooms. Let's begin with a story that takes place at an emblematic site, one that symbolizes the rise of the fossil economy and a global system of mass production and consumption that characterizes the Anthropocene. The 19th Century Industrial Exposition, or World's Fair. Tonight we escape to Paris at the time of the Great Exposition and one of the recurring legends of our time and Alexander Wilkett's version of the story of The Vanishing Lady. As this opening announcement indicates, The Vanishing Lady is a unique episode because it's based on an urban legend that was then adapted by Alexander Wolcott and collected in his book 
while Rome burns. In his book, Wolcott provided some intriguing information about the way the story circulated. He claimed that it was told as a kind of a parlor game where the listener was challenged to guess what had happened to the vanishing lady. So keep that in mind while you're listening. And as we go through the episode, I'm going to stop a few times to suggest ways that audiences might have solved the riddle. The escape broadcast begins with a frame story that's not found in previous versions of the legend. Another cup of tea, Bruce? Uh, no, thank you, my dear. I just light up my pipe now and have a look at the evening standard. I'd like another, please, Mother. All right, Alice. Cynthia Winship and her husband, Bruce, are having tea when their teenage daughter, Alice, asks them a question. Mother? Yes, dear? I've been thinking about my grandparents. Oh. I know all about Daddy's parents. I know about your father, too, and how he died in India from his wounds and how gallant he was at the Khyber Pass, but... Mother? Yes, dear? You've never, never told me anything about Grandmother Winship. Haven't I? No, and I'd... I'd like to know something Bruce. about... Bruce. The child's 16. I think it's time she knew. Cynthia's explanation facilitates a flashback that moves us out of the frame story and into the central narrative. As you know, Alice... I was born and brought up in India. And I was about your age when my father was killed in the Khyber campaign. Mother decided to leave India for good and return to her old home in Warwickshire. However, since it was necessary for her to go to Paris to attend to some details of my father's estate, she decided that we should leave the P&O boat in Marseille and proceed by train. You may imagine the timidity with which we two unescorted ladies traveled across France without the slightest knowledge of the language and without, indeed, assurance that we could find a hotel room in Paris. They enter Paris just as the great Exposition Universale of 1889 is getting underway and the city is jammed with visitors. They arrive at the hotel where they've made reservations, check in with the manager, welcome, welcome. sign the register, and are shown to their room. Cynthia's mother is exhausted from the long journey and doesn't trust the porter who carries their bags. This way, ladies. Keep your eye on that porter, Cynthia. I don't trust this Frenchman. The hotel is a sinister place, she says. Such a sinister place. Cynthia loves their picturesque room. Oh, what a lovely big room. And look, Mama, French windows. And the park out there. But her mother continues to make ominous comments. Oh, Mother, it's something out of a book. Yes, my dear. That's the trouble with Paris. It's so attractive. But underneath, it's evil. Soon after the porter leaves, Cynthia's mother faints. Can't seem to catch my... <gasps> Mama. Mama, what's the matter? Mama! Mama, speak to me. Cynthia calls the front desk on the telephone. Hello, operator. Will you please send a doctor up to room number... Oh, let me see. Number 342. Pardon? Will you please send a doctor to room number 342? A doctor? A doctor? A doctor arrives and finds Mrs. Winship unconscious but breathing. He confers with the hotel manager in French 
and then tells Cynthia, Mademoiselle, your mother is ill, yes, seriously ill. It is a collapse due perhaps to the strain of traveling. Uh, however, a week of, or two of absolute rest A week will... or two? We were to go on to England tomorrow. Well, that would be out of the question. She cannot be moved for at least several days. Right now, she must have a complete rest. The next 24 hours will be critical. Immediately, I need some medicine. Will you fetch it for me? Why, yes, I must not leave your mother for a moment during these critical hours. Here, I will write down this address and a little message to my wife. Your wife? Yes, I have the medicine already prepared at my home. It will be faster to go there for it than to a pharmacy. There are a few chemists who have the ingredients. But couldn't you telephone? Alas, I have no telephone. Well, then, a, a messenger, perhaps. Oh, mademoiselle, you do not know Paris en fait. With the exposition opening, nowhere can you find a reliable messenger. They are all selling uh, souvenirs. No, mademoiselle, you will accomplish the errand more rapidly yourself. Ah, voici l'adresse. Here's the address, 24 bis rue Val-de-Grasse. And here is the message to give to my wife. But I don't know Paris at all. I'm a total stranger here. I'm sure the manager here will... Uh, give the necessary instructions to the cabbie? The manager agrees to make arrangements for Cynthia's transportation, but there's something in his voice that hints that he's hiding something. Indeed, I will. If mademoiselle is ready... He calls a cab and gives the driver instructions in French, which, again, Cynthia doesn't understand. Watching the landmarks pass outside her window, Cynthia begins to suspect that they're going around in circles. Finally, they arrive at the doctor's house. Oh, hurry. Hurry, hurry, please. We... The doctor sent me for some medicine. Here, please read this. Oh, entrez, mademoiselle. Thank you. Quand vous ne pouvez plus la faire the doctor's wife stood there reading and rereading the note as though she didn't understand it. And until I thought I would scream. Oh, please, please hurry. Get the medicine. It's my mother. She may be dying. I must get back to her. Please hurry. Asseyez-vous. She pointed to a chair. Attendez. And slowly walked down the hall and closed the door behind her. I waited, and waited, and I wondered. Wondered about the time the taxi had taken to get here, about that arch that looked so familiar. And I was torn by the hundred nameless anxieties that torture you when your nearest and dearest is ill. And then I heard something that froze my blood. A telephone, a telephone clearly ringing somewhere in the house. But the doctor had said he had no telephone. That was the reason I must come all the way for the medicine. No, it it couldn't be in this house. It, it must be next door or across the street. Of course, that's where the sound was coming from. Hello? But no. It was the voice of the doctor's wife answering the phone. Oh, no. No, what monstrous plot was this? I felt my scalp crawl with terror. Why would the doctor lie about that, she wonders. <laughs> She gets back in the same cab with the same driver, and the return journey is just as slow and circuitous as before. 
when the unbearable cab ride finally ends, Cynthia finds that the driver has taken her to the wrong hotel. I jumped out of the cab. And then I saw the sign over the entrance. It said, Hotel Ritz. Driver, you've taken me to the wrong hotel. I'm staying at the Grand Hotel Universal. I, I don't understand what you're saying, but will you please take me to the Grand Hotel Universal? We should pause here for a moment and remember that this is one of the rare episodes of Escape with a female hero. You might have noticed that the first act of this female-centered adventure works a little differently from a lot of Escape stories. This is not about a hero who penetrates the colonial interior or crosses into a wilderness zone. Instead, Cynthia's adventure involves the tricky navigation of travel within the colonial metropolitan center, Paris. By standing apart like this from the majority of Escape stories, The Vanishing Lady reveals the gendered assumptions that dictate where action happens in most adventure stories. It seems that for female travelers at this time, the supposedly safe and silent places could pose their own danger and adventure. Alexander Wolcott observed that the legend of the Vanishing Lady was particularly popular with, quote, old ladies on shipboard, what he called rootless widows who did a good deal of traveling. If Wolcott's observation was accurate, the story not only depicts female travel, but it circulated amongst a public of female travelers who might have sympathized with Cynthia's situation. There are some interesting knock-on effects that result from transposing adventure to the interior of the colonial center. Notice how Cynthia's painfully slow trip to the doctor's office warps the way time usually works in adventure stories. This gives us a sense of Cynthia's frustration But in the context of the adventure genre, it pulls against the grain of our expectation that action sequences will show us a hero whose split-second decisions yield immediate results. Instead of a hero who forges their character in the furnace of action, we find a hero whose sense of self is dissolving in the deep freeze of inaction. Instead of adventure's contraction of distance and thrill of travel, Cynthia experiences a terrifying expansion of space. This is like the slow adventure I've been asking you to hear in previous episodes, but this time it's hardwired into the story itself, and it's given a cold, ominous edge. The first act of The Vanishing Lady starts to give us a sense of a different logic at work for interior adventures. And given the importance of gender in that logic, it may not come as a surprise that a sense of forward motion and agency only returns to the story with the introduction of a male character. And then shouldering his way through the crowd, I saw a bareheaded young man in tweeds with a pipe clamped in his teeth. And before he had a chance to speak, I knew help had come. Uh, I'm sorry, having some trouble? Oh, thank heavens, you're English. All right, you are. Uh, what seems to be the matter? 
I told him rapidly as I could, and he paid the mulish cabby. Merci, monsieur. Popped me into another cab, and five minutes later we walked into the lobby of the Grand Hotel Universal. The manager was behind the desk. My mother, is she all right? I beg your pardon? My, my mother, Mrs. Winship in 342, is she all right? Uh, Mademoiselle must be mistaken. There is no Winship in 342. What? 342 is occupied by Monsieur Auguste Noailles, a permanent guest. But don't you remember me? I'm Cynthia Winship. Two hours ago, you put me into a taxi to go to the doctor's house for some medicine for my mother. I am afraid that Mademoiselle is mistaken. I have never seen her before in my life. Well, look here, what is this? No, listen, I swear it to you. It's just as I say. We signed a register less than three hours ago. We got in on the train from Marseille. Well, let's have a look at the register. Yes. I'll show you I'm in 342. Where is the register? It is there, mademoiselle. You may see it for yourself. See, today's date. 14 guests registered, but I don't see any mademoiselle or madame Winship. Do you? No. What have you done with my mother? What have you done with my mother? Please, mademoiselle. You have done something Please, with my mademoiselle. No, what have you done? I should not have Desperate for proof to corroborate her story, Cynthia and Bruce go to the doctor's house, which, it turns out, is only minutes from the hotel. Cynthia was right. Her cab journey had been unnecessarily prolonged. The doctor, like the hotel manager and the porter, says he has no recollection of her or her mother and sends them away. If Alexander Wolcott was right, and this story was being told as a riddle, one solution that might have occurred to people in the early 20th century was that Cynthia and her mother had fallen victim to a white slavery kidnapping ring. In this view, the hotel manager and the doctor were part of a nefarious organization that tricked women into a life of forced travel and prostitution. There was a moral panic about white slavery in the early decades of the 20th century, and as two unescorted women in an urban site of public amusement, Cynthia and her mother fit this cultural script. The white slavery solution to the riddle turns the vanishing lady into an infrastructural narrative about a shadowy network of global transportation and illegal traffic. The next day, Bruce uses his connections at the British Embassy to bring diplomatic pressure on the hotel, and the manager agrees to let Cynthia into the room where she last saw her mother. In order to substantiate her claims, Cynthia tells Bruce a litany of details that she remembers about the room. In this room, the draperies were plum-colored. There was a marble table, a uh, black marble it was, and a gilt clock. It had run down. The hands had stopped, I remember, at 20 minutes past three. The walls were covered in, in rose brocade, and the bedspread was a washed-out yellow. Oh, if I could only get into that room, you'd see I'm not making this up. I'm Mom. not. The manager escorts Bruce and Cynthia into the room. Now, remember what I told you last night, Bruce. You'll see plum-colored draperies, black marble top table, rose walls, and a gilt clock with a hand stopped at 20 minutes past three. You'll see. Yes, Cynthia. Voila, le troisième. Uh, this way, gentlemen. Uh, it was room 342 you wish to see, mademoiselle? Yes, that's right. Third door to the right. So. You see, Bruce? I know where it is. Yes, madame. Here we are. 
Voila. Enter, please. Now, Bruce, you shall see the yellow bedspread. Oh. Not quite the room you just described in the elevator, mademoiselle. The drapes are royal blue. No. Oh, a little dusty, I fear. I must have this room uh, renovated. You see, there is no marble top table. No. The clock, as you notice, is running. No. And right on time, it seems, the walls are not rose brocade, but yellow flowered wallpaper. No. No, my dear mademoiselle, you see how thoroughly mistaken you are. No, no, no. They tried to make me think I was mad. They succeeded. I remembered nothing until I awoke in my aunt's house in England two weeks later, thanks to Bruce, who never left my side during those terrible days when my sanity hung in the balance. Well, that's the story, Alice. That's why I've never been able to talk about your grandmother, Winship. Oh, Mother, how horrible. What happened to the vanishing lady? Cynthia's mental breakdown opens up another possible solution to the riddle. Maybe Cynthia is somehow delusional. My sanity hung in the balance. The only alternative seems to be some kind of massive conspiracy. But what could possibly be the motivation for that? The Escape broadcast provides its solution to the riddle. Since you've at last brought yourself to discuss your mother's disappearance, I think it's time you knew the true facts. Bruce. Your mother died. <gasps> 20 minutes after you left the hotel on that fool's errand for the doctor. Oh, no. She died of the bubonic plague. She'd caught it in India before she sailed. The doctor recognized the symptoms the moment he examined her. He told the hotel manager in French, in your presence. They agreed that the matter must be kept completely secret. If the news leaked out that there was a case of plague in Paris, the city would have been emptied of visitors and the exposition would have been a failure. The bellboy was paid to claim he never saw you. The taxi driver was paid well to take you to the doctor's house by the most roundabout route. The note to the doctor's wife advised her to detain you as long as she could. And the taxi driver added his own imaginative touch by returning you to the Ritz instead of the Universal. When did you find out? Next morning. By then, the conspiracy had grown to international proportions. The embassy had been advised. If the exposition was a failure, the franc would fall, the pound sterling would be affected, that sort of thing. So the solution to the riddle of the vanishing lady turns out to be a multinational cabal meant to ensure the success of a massive economic venture. This urban legend links an individual's traumatic experience to a global system of corporate capitalism that's symbolized in the exposition and its icon of industrial progress, the Eiffel Tower. The way that The Vanishing Lady maps social space is similar to discourses about toxics in the environment. Stories about toxicity tend to link an individual's encounter with environmental pollutants to powerful but often imperceptible social structures. Toxic discourse is characterized by a rhetoric of allegation rather than proof. This is because of the slow pace of scientific and legal procedures and because of the power imbalance when a citizen challenges large institutions or corporations. 
The result is that victims of environmental illness often end up, like Cynthia, oscillating between outrage and uncertainty. The Vanishing Lady resonates with toxic discourse because of its dynamics of allegation and its themes of plague and pandemic. In fact, I want to offer one more solution to the riddle of the Vanishing Lady, one that moves the story fully into the toxic zone. The earliest known published version of the legend was written by a journalist named Nancy McClelland, and it appeared in American newspapers in 1897. In this version, it's three Americans, a mother and two daughters, who arrive in Paris at the time of the exposition. The basic outlines of the plot are all here. The mother disappears, the daughters find that her room has been redecorated, weeks pass, and then a policeman arrives and explains that their mother died of smallpox, but this was covered up to avoid financial ruin. We also get the scene where the girls recite details about their mother's room to prove their story. Let's take a closer look at the earliest known description of the mysterious hotel room. Last night, the hangings and papering had been green. This morning, they were red. Last night, the furniture had been oak. Now, it's dark-stained wood. Last night, the floor had been carpeted. This morning, it was bare except for a few rugs. The detail I'd like you to notice is that the hangings and wallpaper in the vanished room were green. For listeners green. at the turn of the century, that detail green. might have sparked another solution to green. the riddle, that the mother's illness green. was caused by toxic arsenic that was contained in the hotel room's green, green wallpaper. Green. green. There was a fashion for vivid green pigments in the 19th century that were created using arsenic. Arsenic was in plentiful supply at this time as a byproduct of the mining industry. Vivid green pigments found their way into wallpaper, which was a booming industry at this time because of the rise of indoor gas lighting. As industrialized Western cities were becoming increasingly gray on the outside, Victorians were living in an indoor green environment provided by green, green. pigments made with arsenic. Green. green. Over the course of the latter half of the 19th century, the general public gradually learned of the health risks posed by green pigments in food, clothing, green. and wallpaper. Green. For the historian James green. Wharton, the issue of arsenic in 19th century homes green. was the template for pollution in the modern industrial world. The pilot episode, he writes, for a series of dramas of environmental poisoning that has no end in sight. The presence of green wallpaper in the earliest known version of The Vanishing Lady leaves a trace of this inaugural toxic panic in the story. Those toxic overtones become more pronounced when we consider two other adaptations of the legend made during the 1950s. So Long at the Fair is a film made in 1950. Vicki Barton, played by Jean Simmons, and her brother Johnny arrive in Paris after a vacation in Italy. 
Johnny disappears from his hotel room, and from there, the film follows the general outlines of the legend, though the Englishman who comes to Vicky's assistance is a painter living in Paris named George Hathaway, played by Dirk Bogard. The film's visual style develops parallels between the public spaces of the exposition and the interior of the hotel. In one beautiful shot, we see Vicky open her hotel window so that her room shares the frame with the Eiffel Tower. Johnny, look. The Eiffel Tower. Isn't it wonderful? Here we get in miniature how the story connects the inside and the outside, the individual and the social. Wallpaper is a recurring motif in the film. In an early shot, we see Johnny walking past workers in the hotel hanging wallpaper. And when Vicky finds that her brother has vanished, all the anxiety and dread of this moment become magnetized to the mundane image of wallpaper as she stares at the blank wall where the door to Johnny's room had been. At the film's climax, Vicky and George use the balcony window to sneak into Johnny's sealed hotel room. They open the door into the hotel by breaking through the newly plastered wall, the truth literally erupting out of the wallpaper. Wallpaper is also a significant motif in another adaptation of the story. This one broadcast in October 1955 on the CBS television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The episode Into Thin Air begins when a mother and daughter arrive at a Paris hotel. Merci, madame. It's a lovely room. And Wallpaper is the key indication that their hotel room has been redecorated. When they first enter the room, the camera pans to reveal wallpaper with a floral pattern, and after the mother has disappeared, another pan shows striped wallpaper. With help from the British Embassy, the daughter gets back into her room, and as she's being shown out, she tears at the wall to reveal the layer of dark floral paper underneath. Look! There's the old paper. That's the pattern I described to you. They've changed this room, repapered it. Mademoiselle, this is ridiculous. Pay no attention, monsieur. Oh, I knew it. Even smells new. Can you smell the wallpaper paste, Mr. Farnham? Feel the wall. It's cool. It's not even dry yet. A close-up of the wallpaper functions as the pivotal revelation of deception and conspiracy. The prominence of wallpaper as a trope across multiple versions of The Vanishing Lady helps us to hear the story as a literary allusion to the arsenic panic of the 19th century. That panic shows the early links developing between the Industrial Revolution, the fossil economy, and a dynamic of toxic blowback that would become hallmarks of the Anthropocene. Here, and in the other indoor adventures we'll examine in the next two episodes of my podcast, adventurous listening means listening for the presence of toxic materials lurking in the narrative.
One model for this kind of listening can be found in the work of sound artist Christina Kubisch. Kubisch's electrical walks use special headphones to make audible the ubiquitous electromagnetic fields that surround us in lights, security devices, surveillance cameras, ATMs, and public transport networks. Wearing Kubish's headphones, our perception of everyday space changes, and we become aware of powerful, though invisible, presences all around us. I want to do something similar for the narrative spaces of Escape's indoor adventures. Hearing the toxic overtones in The Vanishing Lady prompts new questions about the story. What if the doctor had recognized that Cynthia's mother was suffering from arsenic poisoning, not bubonic plague? What if he, the hotel manager, and the embassy had made up the story about plague in order to shift the blame onto the colonies? With these questions in mind, let's return one last time to Escape's version of The Vanishing Lady. Among the various versions of the legend I've been talking about, the Escape version stands out because of a significant twist at the end of the frame narrative. Cynthia is shaken by Bruce's sudden revelation about her mother's fate, and she asks him how he could have let her be so humiliated at the hotel back in Paris. I knew when we went back to the hotel you would not find your plum drapes and rose-colored walls and black marble top table. And you let me go through with it? What, what could I do? I was acting under orders. I knew that the hotel had completely fumigated and redecorated the room overnight, and everything was in readiness to repudiate your story. I had to let the last act of a dreadful farce play to its dreadful end. Why? Why didn't you tell me this years ago? Why did you let me go on all this, this time? This is the first time you have ever mentioned your mother since then, my dear. Alice. Yes, Mother? There's a new issue of the Tatler in the library, dear. Wouldn't you like to look at it? But, Mother, I want to... Now, dear. Want to have a talk with your father. Escape reveals the answer to one riddle about the vanishing lady, but leaves the listener wondering about another one. What did Cynthia say to Bruce after Alice left the room? In other versions of the story, the statement of a male doctor, policeman, or diplomat establishes closure. But here, it's Cynthia who gets the last word, and the sound of her voice suggests that she's been jolted out of her haze of fear and uncertainty. Now, dear, want to have a talk with your father? Her demand for a reckoning with Bruce comes across as an antidote to her lack of agency in Paris, setting the stage for her to take decisive action and redefine her sense of self. In other words, it's in this very last line of dialogue that she most resembles a traditional action hero. When I imagine the confrontation between Cynthia and Bruce, I hear the show's tranquil opening scene contaminated by toxic revelations from the past, revealing their life together to be built on a foundation of deception. 
I hear Cynthia making allegations that trace a global conspiracy back to a middle-class English home. And I hear Cynthia giving voice to the victims of the slow-moving violence that's a defining feature of the Anthropocene, demanding that someone be held accountable for the people and the places that have vanished before their time. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu/p/esc. Thanks for listening.